All right, so here's what's going to happen. Just saying this person's name that I'm about ready to speak is going to drop the temperature in this room. Ice is going to start forming on the windows outside. What's this name? Who is this person? Job. Job. Why? Because everyone knows Job is not just about suffering. It's that Job is suffering. And we just hope he's not contagious. Right? So please not me, Lord. Please not my spouse, Lord. Please not my kids. Please not my friends. Please not my church. Please not my country. Please not my neighbors. Please not my community. Right? Please not some epic evil and suffering. Please not some pandemic. Please not shutdowns. Please not like cultural chaos and political chaos. Please not ecclesiastical disunity and confusion. Please not these things, Lord. Please not like a dystopian Orwellian power grab for individuals and groups in an area. Please not that, Lord. But when it is us, right? When it does become us, we desperately cry out, why God? We desperately cry out, like, where, where are you, God? And if we're all honest, we all cry out when we suffer. We all cry out when it strikes our front door or our family or our neighborhood or our church or our community or our nation. We cry out like, what have we done wrong? What have we done wrong? Something must be catching up to us. And then we say things like, and then once we've, we've moved on, that initial shock, right? We move into, do you care, God? I mean, you're good, right? You're all loving, right? And then we move on to the next question, which is, are you able to do something about this? You're all powerful, right? You control everything, right? At the end of our text today, there is a terrifying image. It's an image that none of us want to partake in, none of us want to experience, though I know many of you have. This is how the text ends in our reading today. He sat in the ashes. The ashes was the garbage dump outside the community. The ashes was where they burned the trash. Job is alone in the ashes. That's how our text ends today. It's the title of the sermon today, the message today. Suffering does this. Suffering reduces you to ashes. Suffering reduces us to nothing. That is our greatest fear. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. There's a little longer bitness of reading, so if you need to sit down, please feel free to do so. We're going to read on into verse 10. So it goes like this. There was a man from the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 
I'm just going to, you could see he possessed a lot. And then his sons, down in verse 4, used to go and hold a feast. In other words, what you're going to see is that he's probably the wealthiest man in the Eastern world, ancient world at the time. He's probably the greatest man in the East. His sons would go and hold feasts on their day, which meant their birthday, right? And they would send and invite their other three sisters to eat and drink with them. Parties! Birthday parties! That's where it all started, I guess. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job says, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, literally the Satan, also came among them. The Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? And the Satan answered, the Lord, and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? In other words, you've protected him. You have blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But, but stretch out your hand. Touch all that he has. And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, Behold, pay attention. All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hands. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking in the wine of their older brother's house. It's his birthday. And there came a messenger to Job. And said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, so this is rapid fire, rapid fire, rapid fire. While he was speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants consumed them and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups, made a raid terrorists on the camels and took and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword i alone had escaped to tell you while he was yet speaking there came another and said your sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house behold a great wind came across the wilderness struck the four corners of the house it fell and the young people they're all dead i alone escaped to tell you then job arose tore his robe shaved his head fell on the ground and worshiped and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? The Satan answered and said to the Lord, from going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down on the face of it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless upright man who fears God and turns from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery for which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. 
Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity, your righteousness? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? So in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, um, this is a windy text. And the ashes blow, and they get in our eyes, and it's hard to breathe, make us cough and choke. It's a very, very difficult text. So, oh Lord, you say you're near in your word, so we trust that right now for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so how do you survive the ashes? In other words, how do you survive suffering? That's our question today. Remember, we're doing a mini-series on stories from the dark. So, alone in the dark last week, alone in the ashes this week. That's what we're doing. How do we survive suffering? I'm going to get the answer, and the answer is going to come at the end, but it's going to come through three aspects of suffering from this text. So, this text, if it's like a diamond, it's got angles, cuts in the diamond, and we're going to spin it and look at one aspect of suffering and another aspect of suffering, and yet another aspect of suffering. In these three aspects, we will find our answer to how you survive suffering. Here are the three aspects. You don't need to write them down. If you'd like to take notes, that's great, uh, but you don't have to. You can just, like, rewatch this thing. The mystery of suffering, the problem of suffering, the meaning of suffering. That's what we're looking at. The mystery, the problem, and then ultimately the meaning of it. So let's start with the mystery, but we're going to start with the mystery by acknowledging that it's a mystery to everybody. So everybody's trying to deal with suffering in the world. So we're going to look at two of the largest ways of looking at the world that are not the Bible, that are not Job. How do they deal with suffering? So how does naturalism deal with suffering? Evolutionary naturalism, the perhaps largest worldview, if you want to call it. Let's just say it this way. Everyone, God made us interpreters. Because we're worded people. So he gives, us a, he gives us his word and we're to be interpreting it rightly. That's what happened way back in the beginning. So everyone wears a pair of glasses. Every human being interprets reality. Every human being is a judge, if you will. So if we don't interpret reality through the Bible, it doesn't mean we stop interpreting just means we have another lens to look through. It just means we have another interpretation of reality. We spin. So that's why in the Old Testament, false prophets were so deadly. And false prophets were so taken so seriously. We would call them in the New Testament false teachers. Because they spin a world of reality that doesn't exist. Our language today would be like they create a narrative. See? That's the language of what we're talking about right here. So... Naturalism, how does it deal with suffering? Naturalism sees suffering and evil as the product of waste. It's, it's the product of energy that's run off from the collision of atomic and subatomic particles. So naturalism says evil and suffering is natural. You've got atomic particles and subatomic particles that collide, and when they collide, there's an energy that comes off them. When they collide, there's a waste that comes off of them. When they collide, there's runoff. That's all evil and suffering is. It's just runoff. It's just the product of waste. 
from the collision of natural selection, right? So the pandemic, COVID, is a product of waste from the collision of particles and subatomic particles. It's just natural selection. It's survival of the fittest. It's weakness leaving the cosmos. (laughs) Therefore, we shouldn't get so worked up about it. You shouldn't get so worked up about this. You shouldn't get so worked up about COVID. You shouldn't get so worked up about riots. You shouldn't get so worked up about racism and abortion and human trafficking. You shouldn't get so worked up about the loss of your child and your friend and your spouse and your parent. We shouldn't get so worked up about the cultural chaos and the ecclesiastical, which means church confusion and disunity today. It's just natural, y'all. Stop taking it so personally. Job, it's not that big a deal. Just in case you're wondering, Marxism, statism, totalitarianism, most isms live in this world. Just in case you're wondering. So how do Eastern religions deal with suffering? That's naturalism, right? How do Eastern religions deal with it? It probably could be the second most popular, second most largest interpretive lens of the world. It covers, I mean, it's hard for us to see because, you know, well, we do. I mean, we're seeing it more and more in this country. But outside the Western world, the majority of the world sees this way. Eastern religions, how do they deal with suffering? Eastern religions see suffering and evil as the the immature part, the defective part, the imperfect part of cosmic oneness, of the force. Think Star Wars, Darth Vader, right? With me? A cosmic unity, state of being, idea, everybody could have a little different Uh, aspect or definition of that texture, but there's this cosmic oneness, this cycle of life, this force that's out there, and there are imperfect defects in this force. And so the solution to curing suffering and evil is to get rid of the defects, get rid of the imperfections. And so you got to ask yourself, well, how do you get rid of the defects? How do you get rid of the imperfections? How do you get rid of the immaturities of the oneness? How does that happen? And the answer is by spiraling up the cycle of life. The answer is by spiraling up the more mature aspects of oneness and unity of the force. And so you got to ask yourself, we're still asking ourselves, okay, well, well, how do you spiral up? And that's why it's so important for you and I to progressively self-improve. As you progressively self-improve, you progressively self-aware, you're moving up the ladder of the cycle of life. You're moving from imperfections and defects and immaturities to maturity. And as you move up, there's less evil, less suffering. Thereby, by progressively improving, you tap more and more into the cycle of life. You tap more and more into the cosmic oneness. You get better. You get more perfect. You get more complete. Okay? If Paul was here, he'd call it work salvation. That's what he would say. Okay, so how does the Bible deal with suffering? 
Let's look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them. Now look at 2.1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan was among them to present himself before the Lord. You see what's happening here? This is absolutely breathtaking. There's an earthly lens for looking at suffering, and there's a heavenly lens for looking at suffering and evil. Do you see the earthly lens? That's verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, we find out that sin and suffering, or we find out that evil and suffering, is, it involves a real person who lives in a real place, us, who has loving, meaningful relationships, and he lives in a, he has a real life. And then in verses 13 through 19, we see this real person suffer catastrophically the earthly lens shows us a real person in a real place with real relationships and a real life suffer catastrophically in verses 13 through 19 he's reduced to nothing in 2 7 through 8 he becomes nothing he sits in the ashes but now in 1 6 and 2 1 we get a heavenly lens by which to look at the same suffering the same evil. So what happens if we only look at Job or only look at the pandemic or only look at the cultural chaos or only look at your suffering or only look at the loss of your child or friend or parent or only look at evil through an earthly lens? You know what happens? We're going to find out what happens if we stayed with Job, but I'm sorry, we're done with Job after this week. Starting in chapter 3, we're going to meet his friends, and they only look through an earthly lens, and that's why they're lousy friends. You don't want friends like Job. You don't want to be Job's friends, but if all we look at and look through at suffering and evil is an earthly lens, we become Job's friends. We misinterpret suffering. We misinterpret evil. In other words, we could say it this way. We will look at suffering, we will look at evil through a naturalistic lens, from an Eastern religion lens, or from a good old-fashioned, like Belshazzar or whatever his name is, a good old-fashioned religion lens. You know what that lens is? Well, in the Eastern world, it's called karma, and here we call it, if you are good, God will love you and bless you. If you are bad, bad things are going to happen to you. You will get what you deserve in this life. That's good old-fashioned religion. So what's the mystery of suffering? There's a heavenly lens. That's the mystery. And it's that heavenly lens that leads us into the problem of suffering. <laughs> First, we need to say this as we look to the problem of suffering. There are many problems with suffering. There are many questions with suffering. There are many mysteries with suffering. This text does not address them all. Um, there are libraries filled with books that try, literally. Just go Google uh, the problem of evil. Google the problem of suffering, just in the Christian world. It'll be breathtaking. But this text does help us with two painful questions about suffering and two painful questions about evil. The first question is this. If God is all-powerful, isn't he responsible for suffering and evil then? That's question number one. Question number two, if God is all-loving, why does he allow suffering and evil? 
Those two questions are tackled here, so we're going to briefly look at them. Let's look at if God is all-powerful, then isn't he responsible for suffering and evil? I want you to look at verses 6 through 8 in chapter 1. This text is greatly misunderstood, so I'm going to fill in the meaning, interpret it as we go along. You ready? Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them. What's happening here is God is holding court. (laughs) He's holding court. Why is God holding court? Because he's the king. And that's why he summons all the sons of God to the courts. And who are these sons of God? They're all celestial beings. Evil and demonic and angelic both. This is why the text says, the Satan also came among them. Because the king is king over everything. And when the king holds court, he summons all the world all the cosmos and the heavens and the earth before his throne because he's the king. So what's the point here? Just in verse 6, what's the point? God is the king, even over evil. So let's keep going. Verse 7, and so the Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? (laughs) This is so awesome. He's not stupid. God knows exactly where he's come from. But what's the point of this? The point is God is the king, even over evil and suffering. Continuing, the Satan answer the Lord said, man, I've been going to and fro over the earth. I've been walking up and down on it. If Peter were here, he'd say it this way, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, Satan says to God, I've been hunting I'm hunting God. I'm ready to take someone out. Now we come to the very, probably most misunderstood verse, certainly the most misunderstood verse in Job, possibly the Old Testament. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away? This text has been so butchered. It's been butchered syntactically, it's been butchered grammatically, it's been butchered lexically. We can just say it's a butchered text. And when we butcher this text, what we end up doing is we, we have a meaning like this. God looks at Job, uh, looks at the Satan and says, so, you're hunting. Have you thought about putting Job on your wall? Why don't you stuff him? Right? And it, which is a horrible, horrible translation here. The real meaning goes like this. God is demanding as the king, have you been hunting Job? That's a whole different view, isn't it? A whole different view. He comes up to the Satan because he holds court and he's in control of everything. And he comes up to this evil, angelic being and says, have you been hunting Job? And the answer, of course, is yes. That's the point. He's questioning him because he's the judge and he's the king. He's exposing the Satan before himself and before his whole court. You're hunting Job, my servant. So here's what we get right from the beginning when we look through the heavenly lens. God is not the author of suffering and evil. Throughout the Bible, it is always intelligent beings, intelligent moral beings that are the author of suffering and evil. 
angelic or human, but it's always in intelligent moral beings that are the, the authors of evil. Here's what we get. God is not the author of suffering and evil, but he's the king over it. He's not the author of sin and evil. He's not the author of evil and suffering, but he is the king over it. So suffering and evil come to our front door not because God's the author of it. He doesn't get into the mechanics and, and instigate it, originate it. He doesn't, he's not evil. He doesn't instigate it, incite it. Suffering and evil come to our front door not because God is the author of it. Evil and suffering come to our front door because God is the king over it. He rules over it. There's a distinction there. So in other words, God's hand allows what his heart hates. And I know you have many more questions. I know. Uh, possibly if you do want to talk to me some more about this, come up to me after the service. I can't spend, I can't answer all the questions. But I can help and can direct you in places that you can. The next pen, painful question is this. If God is all loving, then why does he allow suffering and evil? If he's all loving, if he cares, why does he allow it? Like, why does he allow it to come to my door? Okay, you're not the author of it. You're not the instigator of it. You're not the one that gets in and makes it happen. You let, you let the Satan be who he is. You let me be who I am, but you're still the king over it. So when it comes to my door, ultimately, it's because you're the king over it that it does. So if you're loving, why? Why my door? Why my friend's door? Why my child's door? Why? Now we're in the deep end, y'all. We are in the deep end of suffering. We're in the deep end of the pool right now with suffering. I want you to realize this is so striking when I realized this the first time I preached on it a long time ago. Job never got an answer to why. He never got an answer to why, what happened to him and what happened to his family. He never got an answer. And that is so hard to hear. But there's so much power in that. What do you mean, Jeff? How can there be power in that? Because Job ultimately didn't need to know why to survive his suffering. Because he does survive. We spend so much of our energy thinking that the only way I'm going to survive suffering is to have an answer to why. If I get why, I'll survive. Job never gets why and survives. And so the power right now, the power for you and me, the spiritual resources for you and me is like shift, change. Oh, my word. That is a, a pursuit that is not ultimately going to help me survive, knowing why. It's so hard to let that go, is it not? I mean, how, how long do you think I've been chasing down why for my neck right now for the past seven, eight months? Why, 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 why? And then God says, Jeff, knowing why isn't, isn't going to help you survive. So what does? Right? 
So we actually, which is really important, we actually get more reasons why Job suffers than Job does. <laughs> this is incredible, right? Because we get this heavenly lens. We get to see why he does it. So here's what happens. We look at the heavenly lens and we know that God, that Job is not suffering because God doesn't love him. Job is suffering because the Satan hates him. Job is not suffering because God does not love him. Job is suffering because the sin, the dark power of sin hates him. The dark power of the death hates him. That's what we see right from the text. So right now, you and I can know our suffering has nothing to do with God not loving us. It has everything to do with dark powers hating us. That's interesting. We also know because of the heavenly lens that sometimes there are specific, identifiable connections between our suffering and a reason. There's traceable reasons at times between suffering and why it happens. There are. We get that from the heavenly lens, right? It could be the Satan. I just scared us all to death. It could be COVID. It could be an airplane crash. It could be the person that pulled the trigger. It could be our own anger and our own self-righteousness and our own adultery. It could be a political party's lust for power, right? Those are traceable reasons to suffering and to evil. But the lens also tells us that there's, the heavenly lens also says, but there are also non, non or untraceable reasons. Sometimes you're just not going to know other than the general human world condition of being broken and fallen like, well, it was the hurricane, um, the tower fell. Remember that happened in the Bible. Remember the tower fell in a city and all the disciples were asking Jesus, okay, who sinned over there? Those bad people, right? Could be at the wrong place at the wrong time. You could have just let go of your kid's hand for a second to scratch your nose. So sometimes there are specific connections to why there's evil and suffering. Sometimes there are just a general condition of being in a fallen, broken world with fallen, broken people. So those are the reasons that we've been given in, in Job. So here's what we got so far. Look through the heavenly lens. You have to look through the heavenly lens. If you don't look through the heavenly lens, you're only going to look through the natural, earthly lens. If you look through the natural, earthly lens, you're going to be Job's friends. You'll go the eastern route. You'll go the naturalistic route. You'll go the good old-fashioned religious route. Okay? The other is trust the good God. So ultimately, God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of suffering. Trust the good God. Also, trust the king. Sometimes he allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He's the king. He overrides evil. He overmasters suffering because he's the king. And he says that ultimately because he loves you. So it's never because he doesn't love you. And this leads us to the last part. It brings us to the meaning of suffering because trusting God's love when you suffer is probably the hardest thing in the world to do. If you've suffered, you know that's the case. 
If you suffer greatly, if you've gone into the deep end of suffering, you know that trusting that God loves you, it's the hardest thing in the world to do. One writer says, have you ever noticed how desperate the families of lost of families of lost loved ones who are, how, what in the world? Do you notice how desperate the families of lost love are to say uh, that their loved one's death was not in vain? I guess what they're trying to say is that when you lose someone, if you notice that families, when they lose someone, they're so desperate to get a reason for it, a purpose, a meaning from it, right? That it wasn't in vain, so they work to reform laws or change social conditions that led to the death. Quote, they need to believe that the death of their loved one has led to new life, that injustices had led to greater justice, right? We're craving for meaning and suffering. We're desperate that it's not in vain, that it's not natural. <laughs> it's not random. It's not just the byproduct of waste. Stop taking it so personally. It's so funny is that everyone that even walks in that worldview, when they suffer, can't stand that worldview. They can't stand the smell of their own beliefs. One of my favorite passages in Job is, is in chapter 23, and listen to it. Listen, just listen and savor it. This is what Job says at the end of all his suffering, at the end of the book. He knows what he is doing with me, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as pure gold. Even though Job didn't know what was happening to him and why it happened, God did. And that was enough for him. How could Job say this, though? How could Job say, God, God overrules the evil, overrules my suffering for good in my life? How can Job say that that God loves him when he suffers? How could Job say that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves? How can he say that? God refers to Job every time he suffers a certain way. Watch it. Read, the, read, this, read this when you go home today. Every time he's suffering, God calls Job my servant. My servant, when he's being obliterated. My servant, Job. My servant, Job. My servant, Job. You know what that means? Suffering is a calling from God. It means suffering is part of serving God. It means that suffering is so loaded with cosmic meaning... It has God's fingerprints all over it. The number one, the number one description in the Old Testament for Jesus is what? The suffering servant. The servant who suffers. Suffering is not outside of God's love. Suffering is dead center in the middle of it. If Satan, if sin, if evil, if suffering, if pain were a killer bee, Jesus took a sting. The stinger broke off in him. And so that Busy little bee, 
That busy little bee bullies us. That busy little bee harasses us. That busy little bee buzzes us. That busy little bee cause fear in us. But that busy little bee is on his way out. And he won't be busy and buzzing much longer. Because the suffering servant took the bee sting, the killer sting. The stinger broke off in him. So why did Jesus take the sting of your suffering? There's only one answer, and this is supposedly the oldest book in the Bible. So in the oldest book in the Bible, probably the first in chronological order to be written, the very first revelation of God, the very first time God says, I want you to know something about who I am. The very first book, he tells you this. There's only one answer to why. There's only one answer why the stinger breaks. There's only one answer that there's a servant who suffers. There's only one answer for a suffering servant, and that's because that suffering servant loves you. He loves sufferers because he's the king of all suffering. How do you survive suffering? How do you survive the ashes? Well, certainly you want to look through the heavenly lens. You don't want to be one of those friends of Job. I've been that plenty of times. It's never worked, and it's never comforted anybody. I can tell you from experience. Trust God. Trust the good God. He's not the author of evil. He's not the author of suffering. Trust the king. Sometimes... His hand allows what his heart hates because he's the king over it, which means he's the king over it is that he overrides it. He overmasters it ultimately to do good to us. But ultimately, y'all, you trust his suffering love for you. He's your suffering servant. That's how you survive. Ultimately.